David Kippen is the National Endowment for the Arts Director of Literature, National Reading Initiatives, and Program Director of The Big Read. Mr. Kippen has been a book critic and essayist for the San Francisco Chronicle and National Public Radio's Day to Day, and is a film critic for XM Radio's Bob Edwards Show. He has also published The Schreiber Theory, a radical rewrite of American film history, and a new translation of Cervantes' The Dialogue of the Dogs. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. David Kippen. Thank you very much, um, not just for this, but for all Socalo does for Southern California. Um, we all owe a debt of gratitude, not just to Socalo this morning, but to the Department of Cultural Affairs of the city of Los Angeles, which came in with such a strong application to the NEA to do a big read of um, the Maltese Falcon, uh, to the department's yeoman partners around town, Sony, all the rest of them everybody who works so hard on events like this that make me even more homesick for my hometown than I already would be. Um, let us jump in um, with a discussion of uh, Dashiell Hammett's The Maltese Falcon. This is a year, next year, 2009, will bring us the centenaries of three great Los Angeles writers. I don't know if you know who they are. Shout them out if you do. Um, hmm? Uh, we'll, go from, <laughs> uh, we'll go from most obscure to most famous, uh, in case anybody gets a bolt from the blue in the meantime, but um, Daniel Fuchs, um, John Fonte, and mm. Chester Himes. Um, so the I'll yeah. say. <laughs> so today we're here to talk about Dashiell Hammett, a writer not commonly thought of as an Angelino, though certainly by gum a Californian. And um, what I'd like to do is introduce each of the panelists, not all at once so fast that you can't digest their estimable accomplishments, but maybe one at a time with a question apiece. Um, I'd like to start with uh, Richard Lehman, who, um, as many of you already know, is the editor of Discovering the Maltese Falcon uh, and Sam Spade, um, a terrific book published by someone you'll meet in just a moment. He's written six books on Dashiell Hammett. Uh, including literary masterpieces, The Maltese Falcon, Dashiell Hammett, A Descriptive Biography, and Shadow Man, A Life of Dashiell Hammett, um, which reposes right now in my book bag and which he's going to sign before we let him off the premises. Um, he was nominated for an Edgar Award by the Mystery Writers of America for editing selected letters of Dashiell Hammett, 1921 to 1960, which is here, and which another of our panelists, Julie Rivette, uh, also uh, co-edited. And uh, he's been nominated for another Edgar Award for the aforementioned Discovering the Maltese Falcon and Sam Spade. So, Richard, um, how did this and this marvelous book come into existence? How did it come into existence? It came into existence uh, over a period of uh, probably 15, 20 years. And there are two facts uh, that you need to keep in mind uh, when you think about uh, what uh, made the Maltese Falcon. Uh, one was Hammett's experience. Uh, he was a, a Pinkerton detective at a time when being a Pinkerton detective meant being uh, a part of the most professional, one of the most professional uh, detective organizations in the world. Uh, when Edward VII was uh, coronated, the Pinkertons were called to London to assist with security. That's how good the Pinkertons were. When you say that Hammett was a Pinkerton detective, it doesn't mean that he was a bank guard somewhere. <laughs> it, it meant that he was uh, operating at the very highest uh, level of professionalism uh, in, in uh, the detective business. He had the experience to draw on. That's thing number one. Uh, thing number two, uh, he practiced. Uh, beginning in 1922, uh, he started uh, writing for a pulp magazine called uh, Black Mask. 
uh, he wrote and he wrote and he wrote. There may be some argument about this, but I think at the beginning, uh, the stories were uh, merely uh, publishable. Uh, they got better as he went. Uh, he, uh, during the course of a five, seven year apprenticeship as a, a writer, uh, writing every day, writing every month, writing out of necessity, uh, he uh, developed uh, an aesthetic sense. He developed the, this, the tools in his tool chest, the, the writer's tools, and he also developed uh, a sense of what literature is uh, and how it ought to best be presented. When he sent the Maltese Falcon to his publisher, or actually before he sent it, uh, he said he was working on a book uh, in which he hoped uh, to make literature out of the detective form. Uh, that's a very important statement, and I think uh, it's uh, interesting to think about what he meant when he said, make literature. Um, and it actually uh, makes, I think, a pretty smooth uh, transition into a question I'm going to have for the man I'm about to introduce. Uh, Tom Nolan, uh, for a long time and still a fellow book critic of mine, um, he reviews mystery fiction for the Wall Street Journal and he's been a contributing editor for the late lamented California Magazine and Los Angeles Magazine. He's also written for Rolling Stone, Playboy, TV Guide, and the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, speaking of late lamented. Um, he's the author of several books, including the Edgar-nominated biography of a man who I think it's a tenable case to make belongs alongside Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler on the Mount Rushmore of Los Angeles detective fiction writing, Ross MacDonald. Um, welcome, Tom Nolan. My question for you would be, as a critic, uh, did um, Hammett uh, hit the called shot that he set out to do and make of the detective story literature with this book? Oh, certainly, certainly, and, and with his other books, certainly with the books that followed and even preceded it. Uh, Maltese Falcon is a great novel. It's, uh, uh, it's as good uh, and important uh, as any uh, novel in American literature of that period. And uh, at the time, uh, Hammett was recognized as a great writer, uh, uh, on a par with the best that America had to offer. And his name was uh, seriously mentioned in contention for the Nobel Prize. Uh, MacDonald, uh, among uh, legions of people who followed him, uh, held Hammond in the highest regard and learned much from him. And MacDonald, uh, who was also a serious uh, literary critic and evaluator and knowledgeable person, uh, thought that uh, Hammett was uh, as important a writer as um, uh, Sinclair Lewis and uh, uh, another Nobel Prize uh, winner. Yeah, I'd have, I'd have traded Lewis's Nobel Prize for Hammett's in a heartbeat, wouldn't you? Well, Lewis, <laughs> Lewis was a great writer, too. Yeah. But uh, there were social realists, uh, uh, in addition to everything else Hammett did. Uh, he comes out of a tradition of Northern California social realism. Uh, you know, as a detective story writer, he seems to sort of come out of the blue when you compare him to S.S. Van Dyne and the kind of, um, uh, kind of artificial, uh, unrealistic uh, detective fiction that we had in America at that time. If you think of him in terms of uh, social realism, or Northern California American fiction, uh, he, he makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it stood the test of time, obviously, because we're here talking about him. Mm -hmm. But it's such a great book that you can appreciate it on all kinds of levels, and uh, that's another sign of uh, literature, too. Mm -hmm. um, well, now let's turn to the unsung hero uh, for uh, a lot of readers like us, which would be a publisher, um, Vince Emery 
um, is the publisher of the Ace Performer Collection. Uh, I don't know, does anybody know where the, the phrase Ace Performer comes from? That's what Raymond Chandler called Dashiell Hammett, the Ace Performer. Um, these are all books by uh, or about Dashiell Hammett. He's the editor also of Lost Stories, a book of rare lost Hammett stories. In addition to, and you can never hold this book up too many times, it was invaluable uh, to me and us at the National Endowment of the Arts as we prepared our um, reader's guides and teacher's guides and, and educational CDs uh, for the Maltese Falcon after I fought like hell to get it on the big read list. And when I see a crowd like this, you better believe I'm doubly glad we managed. Um, so, Vince, um, you were telling me earlier about how you came by your love of Dashiell Hammett, and it wasn't from a syllabus the way I did. No, no, it wasn't from a syllabus. It was from a curious crowd that kept reappearing in front of the apartment in San Francisco where I lived. It was, uh, uh, I lived for uh, over a year in an apartment that was a location in one of Hammett's precursor short stories for the Maltese Falcon. Um, and I noticed on weekends that a group of people would surround a guy in a trench coat and fedora <laughs> <laughs> who was talking, and then he would lead this little group of people around. And after seeing this a few times, I decided to find out what it was about and just hung around the fringes. And it was Don Heron leading his Dashiell Hammett tour of San Francisco. And I took part of the tour for free, and it sounded interesting, and I always liked the movie The Maltese Falcon, and just started reading Hammett, liked him more, took the whole tour, actually paid money for it. <laughs> um, and it was through Don's tour that I discovered Hammett and became a Hammett fan and now a Hammett publisher. And grateful we are, too, for it. I've just been dipping into uh, your book, The Moral Vision of Dashiell Hammett, another one that you uh, resurrected from the back issues of Armchair Detective Magazine, the first, I believe, full-length critical study of, of Hammett's work. Right. Um, you are, I think, a fitting successor to uh, Alfred and Blanche Knopf, the publishers, without whom we might, <laughs> oh, might not have. Oh, I've got a long ways to go. Well, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll be watching closely. Thanks. Thank you. Um, and, and our final guest, um, Julie Rivette, is one of four grandchildren of DeShiel Hammett. We've yes, agreed sir. beforehand to play a little drinking game. Uh, anybody, anytime anybody calls him Dashiell Hammett, a habit I'm uh, endeavoring unsuccessfully to break, uh, we're going to take a drink. <laughs> because his name is really DeShiel Hammett. Um, maybe I'll just try and go with Dash. As, as That's fine with me. Okay. Uh, working with uh, Richard Lehman, she helped to edit both selected letters of DeShiel Hammett, which um, I was fortunate enough to review during my tenure as the book critic of the San Francisco Chronicle, and her mother's What did you say about it? Um, I believe it was a <laughs> rave. Um, I'll go back and double check. Um, Just checking. Yeah, I, I, I think you may have had to share credit for the rave with the original author of the letters, but um, if, if, we, if I only had my galley here, you would see a post-it with something rapturous written on just about every page. Um, also uh, edited her mother's memoir, Dashiell Hammett, uh, A Daughter Remembers, which I think I also raved about. I was kind of a, a patsy for anything with Dashiell Hammett's name on it at the Chronicle. To celebrate the publication, <laughs> and, oh, down the hatch, or success to crime, as Sam Spade said. 
And to celebrate the publication of selected letters in 01, she also curated DeShiel Hammett, A Life in Letters, one of the most successful exhibits ever held at the San Francisco Public Library. She's a regular on the Big Read circuit. I hear only rapturous reports from Rochester and other places around the country where she has appeared. Um, and she curated the Maltese Falcon exhibit on display here in the Barnes Art Gallery, which I hope you'll all have a chance to take a, a look-see at before the, the day is out. Um, Julie, how much did your life overlap with your grandfather's? Oh, well, uh, chronologically, very yes. little. Mm -hmm. um, I was, uh, the only time I met my grandfather was in 1960 um, when he was in the last months of his life. We knew that he was, he was dying. So my family flew from the West Coast to the East Coast. Now I was only three and a half, mm. say. <laughs> so um, the, the memories that I have from that visit, which I've kind of tenaciously clung to all these years, mm -hmm. um, have to do with you know, the little snippets of memories that are important to a, a three and a half year old that involves um, largely the large poodle that he raised. <laughs> so I have fond memories of my grandfather teaching me to feed the poodle out of my hand and also of making echoey noises in the top of the mill uh, tower room, that, uh, the house that he shared with Lillian Hellman on Martha's Vineyard Island had a kind of room up at the top. You know. We made echoey noises. Uh, you know, those are the memories that I have. Now, that's chronologically, of course. Now, in the last 10 years especially, uh, our lives have overlapped a great deal more. Um, you know, I was in kind of the right time and the right place to help to edit the letters and then my mother's memoirs and then um, to meet people that knew my grandfather. So I'm in a rather odd position of having to got, you know, having had the opportunity to get to know him much, many decades after his life, after his death, so. What, uh, forgive a broad question, what sort of man was he? He's not the man that people expect him to be, and that's one of the, the great pleasures for me, is people seem to expect this kind of Hemingway-esque curmudgeon, mm -hmm. and um, he really wasn't like that. Uh, it, it's been delightful for me to, to meet people who knew him, and they always seem to get this kind of faraway look, hmm. and their smile, and they'll remember some crazy thing that he did, or some, you know, they'll remember him playing with the baby. Hmm. or, um, you know, being uh, sociable and kind. Um, so that isn't what people expect. I know he, he was a drinker, definitely, and there were times when he was not a pleasant to be around, but uh, for the most part, he was a gentleman. Uh, as my mother says, he was a, a southern gentleman, kind of comes out of, of that, uh, part of that mindset, of that part of the country. Hugely intelligent, hmm. um, very funny, <laughs> a wicked sense of humor. Um, what so kind of sense of humor? Wicked, wicked, well, yes, yes. Okay. wicked sense Got of humor. Yeah, in case you didn't hear me. <laughs> yes. Got so, it. Well, what he had was that ability to cut through and and see things as they were instead mm -hmm. of how society kind of pretended that they should be, um, so that uh, you know he could. Uh, uh, do things well okay so this is an example from my mother's book when Lillian Hellman was living in New York at one point and she was living in a rent controlled apartment and she was giving people bragging about it you know giving people uh, way more information than they needed to know at that point so my grandfather decided he was going to take her down a peg they had um, this is depression years they had the uh, vacuum cleaner salesman and you have the little clips you know well, we'll come vacuum your apartment and show you this wonderful vacuum cleaner. Mm -hmm. So he started filling out all these coupons from the magazines. Not only did he do that, he hired a secretary to help him <laughs> fill out even more coupons. So by the time he sent them all in, and you know, vacuum cleaner salesman after vacuum cleaner salesman would show up at the apartment offering to, you know, and she finally lost the apartment. They kicked her out. <laughs> so, uh, so that's the kind of sense of humor that he had. Yes. In a word, wicked. I yes. Thank you. Ah, um, well, what about this book? 
Um, why does it stay with us so many years later? Um, what is it about it, do you think? And anybody can feel free to jump in here. Why among his five novels? Um, is it the one, do you think, that has stayed with us so long? The characters, first of all, the characters. Sam Spade. I would think that probably a good 75% of detectives now are imitating Sam Spade. <laughs> it's just such a, a great character. You read the novel, you see the movie, you never forget Sam Spade. How close would you say the Spade of the novel and the Spade of the movie are? Well, in physical appearance, if you, the movie, of course, was done multiple times, mm -hmm. but everybody thinks of the Bogart version. Bogart did not look physically like Spade is described. Spade is over tall and broad-shouldered and blonde, and looking like a blonde Satan is mm -hmm. the way that Hammett describes him. And Bogart didn't look like that, but he had the spirit of the character in the novel, and, and that was captured in the movie. So that's close. And helped that the dialogue in the John Huston version of the movie was lifted word for word from the novel. Um, one of you Hammett experts will know this better than I. I repeat the story whenever I go around to Big Read cities. And for anybody who doesn't know, the Big Read is a nationwide program from which, confidentially, we're starting to get some very promising early reports statistically in terms of uh, national reading statistics. Um, I often tell the story, and I don't promise to stop telling it, even if, I'm, even if I learn otherwise today, that um, on a Friday afternoon, John Huston tossed a paperback of the Maltese Falcon to his secretary and said, change the margins on this, we start shooting Monday. I, 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 I was told a slightly different version of the story Please. by Ray Bradbury, who really? knew uh, Hammett well. I sent Ray a copy of Rick Lehman's book, which mm -hmm. seems to get mentioned a lot here. And uh, Ray called me up and thanked me. And he said that the one story he wanted to see in and, and missed in the book was Alan Rivkin uh, was a famous Hollywood screenwriter at the time and a friend of John Huston. And for this was going to be John Huston's first movie as a director, but he was an experienced screenwriter. Oh, yeah. And he talked about having Rifkin write it. And Rifkin, according to Ray Bradbury, Rifkin went through, marked up the novel with what to include, what not to include, gave that to the secretary. She typed that up. Go on with the story. Got it. All right. Oh, well, or should I continue? No, it? feel free, please. And uh, so she typed it up. And um, the thing was that. Jack Warner had said, okay, we'll do this movie if you can shoot it all on the back lot. We've already got rights to the novel because Warner Brothers had made two not-so-good versions of it before, so they didn't have to pay Hammett for the rights. And, uh, but we want to see the script. You've got to do a good script on it. So the secretary had Ripkin's marked-up copy of the novel, went through, typed it up in screenplay format, left it on her desk at the weekend. Jack Warner passed through, saw it, picked it up, took it home, read it over the weekend, and told Houston, yeah, that's a good script. You can do it. <laughs> I've, I've seen a copy. I've seen that copy really? of the script. Where is it? Uh, a collector in Beverly Hills had it, and it's now missing. It was stolen from hmm. a safe in his house. Maybe the same guy who stole the Falcon prop from uh, John's Grill in San Francisco? I don't think so. This no. was, I mean, it's, but the, uh, it was significantly different from the movie and significantly more faithful. A lot of things that were in the novel right. 
that aren't in the movie were in that version of the script. Yeah, there are actually at least three versions of the script that, that I've seen, and they, progressively they, they make changes. Uh, could I say here, uh, please, that books are books and movies are movies, yeah. <laughs> and, and The Maltese Falcon is a wonderful movie. Yeah. It's a classic. You know, it, is, it deserves more accolades than it receives. It ain't the book. Okay. <laughs> um, I just want to ask one last thing about the picture, which is... Excuse um, me, which is better? Oh. <laughs> um, the, a line everybody remembers from the movie, though, appears nowhere in the book. Right. Does anybody know where that came from? Well, I know that it's... I don't... It may have a f more fulsome story, but it is uh, John Huston's line, and it comes from The Tempest. Right, it's it's and it, certainly uh, Houston was familiar with Shakespeare. His father was a Shakespearean actor, and he was a well-educated guy. So yeah, it comes from what is the line in the Tempest: "We are such stuff as dreams are made on." Mm -hmm. uh, sure. Uh, yeah. ac actually, the uh, Houston, in an interview near the end of his life, said that Humphrey Bogart came up with the line oh, on right. the set. I had heard that. Yeah. And they had the ending of the novel is different from the ending of the movie. Uh, there's a scene after that's not included. And they originally, it was in the script, they were going to add it, but because of that line and the way they shot it, they didn't need to. So, but it was Humphrey Bogart gets the credit for okay. adding Shakespeare at the okay. end. I, w I wouldn't have thunk it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was a stage actor, too. You know. Oh, that's true. But if I can add something Please. briefly about the movie, not to deny what's been said, of course, about the, the two being so separate, but if you read the book, there are very detailed descriptions of people's uh, uh, behavior, reactions, movements, uh -huh. and they are reproduced uh, microscopically uh, in, uh, on the screen. So uh, uh, this provided the dialogue and also a lot of physical details of, of people's actions, which is uh, really striking to, uh, yeah. to consider. It yeah, well, yeah, and that's one of the things that's always fascinated me about the novel is that there's a great tension between the dialogue and, mm -hmm. the, and the body language, and the the physical direction um, tells a, you know a lot of the story, and it does dictate kind of stage direction. And Bogart, especially, you see a lot of that the, the jaw kind of mm -hmm. nodding up or the hands shaking. Uh, so or, Houston certainly had a great appreciation for this. Or the description of him rolling a cigarette, uh, which is yes. you know so detailed. It was as if um, yes. you know. A Martian who had never seen a cigarette or anybody roll yeah. one could, could, you know, presumably figure out how just on the basis of that paragraph. Yes. Um, we've talked about Hammett's influence on the movies. What about the movie's influence on Hammett? I mean, there's something very photographic about the account. We're, we're rarely admitted to the character's thoughts. It's a sort of external, third-person uh, attempt to capture just the facts, just the actions. Um, is there something cinematic in that quality that Hammett may have absorbed? Was he a film goer himself? I, I think that uh, probably the influence came from, uh, well, certainly from, from uh, movies, but I think also from the stage. Mm. You know, the, the, and when Hammett uh, sent the Maltese Falcon to Blanche Knopf, he suggested that she attempt a stage adaptation, mm -hmm. which they did. Uh, Benjamin Glazer uh, made a false start and found out they, they didn't have performance mm. uh, rights because Warner had them. Uh, and they stopped it, but but certainly that's that's you know movies uh, dramatic presentation, you know is is one of the uh, major uh, uh, influences in that book. Also, when you're talking about the uh, narrative point of view, uh, something ought to be said uh, about the limited third person. Uh, excuse me for uh, falling into to critical um, uh, stuff. 
I don't like to do that. Uh, but uh, Hammett apparently look, looked to Henry James, who was the master of limited third-person uh, narration. Limited third-person means that you have a narrator who sees uh, exactly what the main character sees. So Sp Spade is not the narrator, uh, but the narrator reports in the novel uh, only uh, what comes to Sam Spade. Uh, so it's a way of, of reinforcing uh, the sense that this is a detective going about his business because the reader sees and knows uh, what the detective knows and is able to uh, you know, come to the, his, his or her own conclusions uh, just as the detective does uh, along and, the way. And in that sense, it's, it's, it's a return in a way to the classic sort of a Sherlock Holmes type story in the sense that you see everything the detective sees and everything is, is there in plain view for the reader just as it is for Spade. Uh, although you don't figure it out uh, uh, until he explains it. And with that point of view, I think he took that point of view as far as you could take it almost in this book, uh, except at the end, Spade finally does you know, explain what he's figured out. Mm -hmm. but, he, but he Hammett took it even farther in, the, in his next book, The Glass Key, mm -hmm. where nothing is explained. You know, it's entirely up to the reader to figure things out. Yeah. Well, I, I think, too, if you're talking about um, this importance of close physical perception goes back to his Pinkerton days, too. Mm -hmm. I, I wish yeah. that we could get access to his Pinkerton's reports because that idea of watching someone and reading their body language and understanding what was going on strictly through observing and then reporting all of that yeah, is critical. I agree. I think you can make the case that in the same way Hemingway's dispatches for the, for the Kansas City Star and the Toronto Star from Europe shaped his style. I think the Pinkerton reports probably did the same thing for Hammett. And, and those physical descriptions of, of people's actions and, and, and uh, psychological stress and, and the expressions on their face and their physical movements are so true and so real. That's, uh, that's another reason why this book holds up and, and it's, it's still fresh. Well, well, another thing is that's kind of fun about the descriptions of characters is that Hammett describes them the way a detective would. If you read his description of Joel Cairo, it's like a detective used to be able to write a description of somebody and mail it to other Pinkerton's offices in other states. And from that description, they'd recognize the person and be able to capture the suspect. If you read the Joel Cairo description, he starts at his head and works his way down to the feet and the hands everything in order and at the end of it you've got a suspect description rather than a character description in a novel. Yeah, that's a good point. We think of, uh, and of course his descriptions of San Francisco in 1929 or so are impeccable. We think of Hammett of course as a San Francisco writer. Um, but I'd like to hear a little bit about his days in Los Angeles. I gather he was down here quite a bit um, accepting money, though not always writing all that prolifically for the studios. Um, yeah. It's where he met Lillian Hellman, and, and I think didn't he come back to Southern California even oh, after sure. he moved back east to visit sure. his children? Sure, he he was back and forth, you know, a lot over the years. Um, he lived, I think, if in the main he lived in the New York area. He, mm -hmm. he considered himself more of a New Yorker, but definitely he traveled when he had work on the West Coast and in the studios. Um, and, you know, people don't realize they, they like to assume that he kind of walked away from the family, and that's not near, that's, that's just not the case. Um, I was even surprised. Uh, he maintained a relationship not only with the girls, but with my grandmother. Mm. Um, it wasn't uh, a typical marriage in any way that people would normally conceive it, but he was very fond of her through all the years. He would come and he would stay at the house. Oh. Um, you know, stayed there for several weeks after my mother got married. Um, you know, and he would stay in the hotels, and the girls would come and visit him, and they would go for you know day trips. 
uh, to the races or to restaurants. And of course, um, the, the book is dedicated to, to, to your Jews, grandmother. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and the book was uh, published 1929 when the book um, came out in Black Mask magazine. It was about the time he left San Francisco. Mm -hmm. My grandmother at that point came down to the Los Angeles area where she had some people that, that she would know and be more comfortable with. Um, so they never lived together as, as in the normal sense. But uh, certainly, yes, he was in uh, Los Angeles a lot and was a regular, at the, whether it was the Beverly Hilton or... Mm -hmm. Uh, the Brown Derby. Well, as an erstwhile San Franciscan, did he despise the place, or did he have a soft spot in his heart for Los Angeles? Well, oh, well, well, he did. The ludicrousness of Hollywood was a bit of an issue, <laughs> um, for good reason. And, and of course, many screenwriters felt this way. They knew that they were they were selling out for the bucks, um, and the drinking was very heavy um, at those points. So, and he just, you know, he he. He liked the money, but he didn't like the fact that he was taking the money. Mm. So it was a very difficult thing. He dealt much better with struggles than he did with success, certainly. Um, I, I think one of the best uh, ways to capture Hammett's feeling about Los Angeles, and the well, not Los Angeles so much as the Hollywood movie industry, is the last short story he ever wrote, which is uh, in the book Lost Stories for sale in the lobby, was, it, it, was, it was about, yeah, I'm a publisher, I'm gonna plug the books I publish. The, but it was about a, uh, it was written about a screenwriter character uh, working like Hammett did without credit to save movies that had screenplay problems and the wacky people who were working in the movie business. And it's a, it's a sardonic comic short story and I think it captures his attitude towards the movie business better than anything else I've seen. Really? What's it called? Uh, I want to say On the Way. It's not On the Way. My brain's stuck. It's On the Way. On the Way? On the Way? Okay. It's On the Way. I have it's, a the last, it's the last, uh, second to the last short story in the book. I had no idea. I have a copy of the book back in Washington and I may still buy one out in the lobby. That's fascinating. Um, hmm. Um, you say it was the last short story you ever wrote, he ever wrote? Published. published. Where was it published? It was published in Collier's magazine, which was a, a slick, yeah. like a slick, expensive, glossy magazine at the time. When would this have been? In the 1930s, 1934, if I remember correctly. And yet you right. went to visit him at, as an old man in 1960. Yes. Where was he all that time? What was he doing? Why wasn't he writing it, for us? Well, he was writing, but he stopped completing fiction. He wrote a lot for the movies. Mm -hmm. And he also became politically active, wrote lots of speeches and political things. He served in World War II. Didn't have to, though. How old was he when he enlisted? 49. 49. 49. Yeah. Went as a private, went through basic training again, and they sent him up to Alaska. He wrote the official military history of the Battle of the Aleutians and edited a newspaper for the soldiers, a daily newspaper for the soldiers on ADAC. If I'm not mistaken, took a dog face by the name of, was it Marvin or Bernard Kalb and turned him into Bernard. one of the best broadcast journalists of the 20th century. That's right. And then in gratitude, his country tossed him in jail a few years later. That's right too. Um, that's only the beginning of it. They threw him in jail. Uh, then the IRS came into the, the mm. picture. And during the McCarthy period, the IRS was one of the, the uh, primary tools uh, of the government. And so Hammett, who uh, had apparently paid his taxes, we have letters suggesting that uh, he was certainly aware of the tax liabilities and instructed Hillman 
uh, who was taking care of his affairs while he was in the Army, uh, to see that the taxes uh, were paid. Uh, the IRS came, uh, found uh, his, that uh, you know, he was delinquent. Uh, moreover, he, since he was blacklisted, there was no income. Yeah. And Hammett, being Hammett, uh, spent his money as it came to him, every penny of it. <laughs> and what he wasn't able to spend, he lent to other people, uh, gave away. Uh, so he was, uh, during uh, the last decade of his life, uh, living uh, off of a, 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 you know, veterans' uh, checks, veterans' benefits. Uh, but he never complained. At least in, in, there's no evidence that he ever complained. You know, he was uh, uh, pleased to be who he was. Hmm. He's a man of great character. I mean, he'd had little trouble finishing his work up until 1934 when, uh, when um, Thin Man. The Thin Man came out. Why do you think if he kept writing, he couldn't get anything else across the finish line after that? The, uh, what was apparently the last uh, uh, attempt at fiction uh, at a novel, his sixth novel, uh, called Tulip, published in Lillian Hellman's collection, uh, The Big Knockover, uh, ends with uh, a character saying, speaking the line, uh, when, you are through, when you are tired, you ought to quit, I think, hmm. and not try to fool your customers with colored bubbles. <laughs> um, this was not a mystery, right, Tulip? No. no. Had he grown impatient with the strictures of the mystery form? Was he looking, after having made the mystery into literature, to turn his back on the genre and, and I don't know, compete in what he, he probably mistakenly considered the big leagues, or is there really no, no basis for that? I don't know that he wanted to compete in that sense, but I, I, I think he had taken this form as, far as, as mm. far as anyone could take it, as far as he could take it. Every book he wrote was different, really, yeah. and revolutionary, and, and changed everything, and created a, a, a whole new field for other people to, uh, to plow. Um, uh, the, with the Falcon, he more or less invented the private eye novel mm -hmm. and, and disposed of it at the same time, uh, being that it's a tragic novel and the, the hero really has no place to go at the end of it, Spade is used up uh, as a character and as a person in a way. Uh, and those are the kinds of books he wrote. And, and even The Thin Man, which a lot of people uh, look down on as, as a less serious book or a sort of frivolous book, even that is a, a substantial work and a groundbreaking work. And again, where, where do you go after that? Hmm. And, and I don't think we can say he didn't write enough. How can we say that? You know, he, he wrote just enough. Yeah. And uh, you know, we should all uh, admire anybody who wrote one of these books. Yeah. I, think, I think it's a useful, you know, when you enter into this, this discussion about Hammett and, and his output and so on, it's useful to think of the, the great writers in American literature and how many great novels they wrote. Uh, for Hemingway, uh, arguably three, uh, I would say. Uh, for uh, Sinclair Claire Lewis, arguably, again, three, although he's a great writer. So Lewis probably over what? Tom, 30, 40 novels? Mm -hmm. A lot. Yeah. A lot, and over a long period of time. Uh, it's very difficult to find a great writer who wrote uh, more than uh, two, three, four masterpieces. Mm -hmm. Hammett wrote at least two, uh, masterpieces, in my view, Maltese Falcon and, and Glass Key. Mm -hmm. Red Harvest is an absolutely wonderful book uh, and falls, uh, you know, is, well, uh, you, you shouldn't do the kind of comparison that I'm doing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you, you've got any sense about literature, but is, is a, a very good book. Um, Thin Man is, in many ways, uh, a very good book. Glass, or, or Dane Curse, eh, I don't know. Uh, but 
Come on, what do you want from the guy? Yeah, and the, and the short stories. I mean, we mentioned his influence on uh, his inheritors. Would anybody agree with me that without the big knockover, The Usual Suspects would be a very different movie? <laughs> Remember that? A lot of those stories hold up really, really well. And, uh, and, and just as a short story writer, he inspired all those people of the time, mm -hmm. you know, uh, like uh, Chandler and everyone who was writing for Black Mask. You know, he set the standard for them to aspire to. And a lot of those stories are well worth reading. Well, it, it, Chandler started out by imitating Hammett's short stories directly. Well, my grandfather was so demanding of himself and mm -hmm. so demanding of the style of writing. I, I talked to a woman once who was the uh, daughter of a writer that he had mentored, and she was telling me a story about how her mother had had a sentence with five adjectives in it, and Hammett, my grandfather, made her justify <laughs> she had to have a very good reason to have that many adjectives in one sentence, and she justified it, and she got to keep them. <laughs> but that was a, a lesson that you know her mother had learned, and then had taught to her daughter, and passed it down. So I know too, my grandfather later in life, when he talked about editing his own work, he was editing his. He was so demanding that he was editing everything down to nothing, um, and he couldn't seem to get past you know his own uh, ambitions were, s you know his own standards were so high at that point that he couldn't seem to meet them. Hmm. So, Tom, you, you spoke of uh, Sam Spade as a tragic hero. Um, I wonder if you could amplify that a little bit. Well, in the uh, classical sense, uh, about which I know very little, but uh, <laughs> MacDonald did make that distinction in, in talking about these kinds of books, the comic hero and the tragic hero. He thought his own uh, series character, Lou Archer, was technically a comic hero mm. in the sense that... Um, his own life really is not at stake, uh, although it is in some of the books, but um, more or less he is, he is a, a chronicler, a commentator, someone who's passing through. The other people are maybe tragic figures because they have lots of things at stake. Uh, Spade is different uh, because he does have uh, everything tied up in this, uh, intentionally or not, uh, you know, as it plays out. Uh, he's, he's sort of destroying his own life or chance at happiness or whatever these things are that he set in motion, even as he's following the only code that he has um, to uh, get through life and, and his profession with. So he's, he's bringing about his own destruction in a way, uh, his spiritual destruction, let's say, uh, through uh, 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 following the code that he needs to follow uh, uh, as a human being and as a professional. So that's the tragedy. It's a, it's a flaw that's contained within him that he can't uh, avoid or escape or ignore. And if, um, if we could just talk uh, briefly about Hammett's own end. I, I find it so moving that after what he endured at the hands of his own government, he's buried at Arlington. Was that, was that his own choice? Yeah, it, that was his wish, yes. He did, um, you know, the, the military service that he put in was important to him. It, especially Alaska was a very happy time for him. It was a hard, there were a lot of hardships, but he thoroughly enjoyed that. He was a great patriot. Mm -hmm. And people forget that when you, they, you know, call him a communist. Yes, he was a communist, but there's no distinction. He was doing the thing that he felt was best for his country. Fought in two world wars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so he is buried at Arlington. Um, there was some ruckus afterwards from the, at the FBI. There was, you know, a notion that perhaps this was not what they'd had in mind, but the deed was done at that point. Um, you know, speaking of great patriots, you, you, you have to uh, recognize J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, <laughs> 
The, the, one of the last uh, entries in Hammett's FBI file are uh, memos from, uh, to uh, Mr. Hoover to attempt to uh, keep Hammett from being buried uh, at yeah. Arlington. Uh, and, you know, it was great patriots fail from time to time, and Mr. Hoover failed. Well, as I recall, didn't in the height of McCarthyism, they try to yank his book uh, off the shelves of uh, army-based libraries around the world until uh, a big Hammett fan by the name of Dwight Eisenhower interposed and said, this is just ridiculous. And Mr. Hoover was maybe cross-dressing at the time. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, and there's a line, there's a great line when uh, McCarthy was actually, uh, uh, at, you know, interviewing my grandfather um, at the Senate subcommittee for government operations, and he says, Mr. Hammett, if you were, you know, part of this government and you had spent millions of dollars on a program to try to stop communism from, you know, be spreading in this country, would you buy books by communist authors to put on State Department libraries? My grandfather paused and stumbled for a minute and said, well, I don't know. And then he says, wait, no, if I were trying to fight communism... I wouldn't give people any books at all. <laughs> and they said, thank you, Mr. Hammett. That was good. <laughs> We're done now. I want to open it up to questions in just a moment. But, but for a last uh, question uh, from the moderator, um, we're joined here by a distinguished uh, blogger for the LA Times' indispensable uh, blog jacket copy. Um, who asked me the inevitable question here in Los Angeles, which is, um, Hammett or Chandler? Um, why, why, why Hammett? I wonder, this is a question which those of us who love not just detective fiction, but California grapple with all the time, although, of course, there is no obligation to choose one or the other, or Ross McDonald. But how do you, how do you weigh them against one another? To me, this gets to the heart of what uh, a program such as The Big Read is all about. Uh, and it's, you know, what moves you? What makes literature an important aspect of your life? Uh, if you begin thinking of, of literature in Hemingway-esque terms as a game, as a competition, hmm. in which, you know, this writer attempts to be better than write, that writer, and Hemingway's going to knock Tolstoy out <laughs> and all that kind of nonsense, then you're, in, in my view at least, uh, you're on the wrong track. Uh, if, on the other hand, uh, you're making lists and say, this is the greatest writer, this is the second greatest writer, this is the third greatest writer, that's not what it's all about either. What it's all about is what moves you. Uh, Robert Olin Butler, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, novelist, short story writer, says uh, that what he looks for in a piece of literature is the thing that, make, that goes, makes it go thwang in the middle of your body. <laughs> You would think being a Pulitzer Prize winner, he'd come up with a better word than thwang. Uh, but, but you, you remember get the, it, don't you? Huh? If you remember, remember it, it, it may not be the wrong word. But, but the, the, the sense is that literature is what, makes, what moves you, what is important to you. If Chandler's in, what's important to you, fine, you know, wonderful. Then to you, uh, Chandler's is the, the, the answer to the question. If Hammett's what moves you, it's what moves me, uh, then fine, Hammett is the answer. Uh, I can't uh, without... stop this tirade without mentioning, <laughs> uh, mentioning Hammett's uh, last interview in which uh, uh, he said, it's the beginning of the end when you recognize that you have style. Yeah. Uh, Chandler has style. <laughs> well, Tom, as the only person up here without a, a, a personal stake in, in Hammett, uh, would you uh, sign on to that? 
Well, it, it's silly to try and pick. I mean, and really, uh, are we only allowed to read one writer? Yeah. But, uh, but I mean, it's like saying, you know, Hem Hemingway or Fitzgerald. You know, uh, that's silly. Uh, Fitzgerald. Uh, well, <laughs> no, agreed. It's a, silly it, it's a mugs game. He's right. Um, <laughs> yes. uh, maybe now would be a good time to open it up to, to some questions. Yes, ma'am. We have a question in the front. My name is Bernadine Bednars, and my question is to Mr. Kippen. Mm. Mr. Kippen, this is an administration that quashes results that it doesn't like, ideas that may offend them. And I'm wondering if there was any prohibition or censorship in, um, this, uh, in the big read. It'll probably be a while before we add Lolita to the big read list. Um, and as a book critic and a lover of Nabokov, I think that's a shame. Um, but I've been astonished. I would not have left my very plum job as one of the last standing book critics uh, for a major metropolitan daily around the country, of which there are even fewer now, um, and at which I was not replaced. Um, if I hadn't hoped that literary excellence as the paramount concern of the big read would not be monkeyed with, and I've been very pleasantly astonished to find that that has indeed been the case. Uh, and when people, especially people in San Francisco, have asked me, well, um, really, working in Washington now? Um, my, my answer is generally, um, our statistics show that readers vote. And the more readers, the better informed the voters. And uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm not sorry I came to Washington, um, much though I miss Los Angeles. Good question. Uh, others? We have a question to your, to your right over here. Uh, Neil Bethke. My question is, is uh, how did precisely his communism manifest itself? What did he do? Who's got the best handle on this? He was the vice president of an organization called the uh, Civil Rights Congress. Uh, the Civil Rights Congress was uh, uh, called name subversive uh, by uh, uh, the uh, FBI and by the, the congressional uh, committees that had the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Uh, and the Civil Rights Congress did indeed have a, a subversive uh, platform. They were in favor of women's rights. Uh, they were in favor of, of civil rights. They had an anti-lynching campaign, uh, and they were in, in favor of voters' rights. Uh, the uh, question of uh, communism and what it meant to be a com communist uh, during uh, the 30s, 40s, and 50s is one uh, that uh, we could spend uh, the rest of the day, the rest of the year, uh, talking about. Uh, in fact, uh, Hammett was a member of what was called the Popular Front. Uh, which was the popular uh, face of communism. Uh, they weren't subversives. Uh, he wasn't going around trying to uh, overthrow and undermine the government, though there were communists who were doing that. Uh, but those, uh, that was a secret arm of, of uh, the party that uh, I believe that Hammond had nothing, uh, no knowledge of. There is. I, I've heard it said, among others, by John, James Elroy that um, it was Hammond's experience as a Pinkerton crushing uh, uh, you know, union, uh, an attempt to organize a union in the minds of Montana that raised his, his social conscience. Is there I have great respect for, for James. Yeah. Uh, nonsense. Really? <laughs> pure, pure, pure speculation. Ah. I would say pure, you know, pure speculation there. 
But um, yeah, he, you know, he was an educator and, and a fundraiser. I mean, those are the two things that he, he was trying to help give people choices. And that's largely what he was involved with. Um, he, he, wa he was a communist, but I, I want to point out that during these McCarthy era years, the what was considered a dangerous communist organization is, is something that wouldn't be now. One of the Senate investigating reports on Hammett listed organizations he had sponsored that were communist organizations, and one of the ones on the list was the Consumers Union, which now, which produces Consumer Reports magazine. <laughs> Do you find that social conscience evident in his work? Well, the glass key has a lot to do with uh, municipal politics and uh, very interesting on the nuts and bolts of uh, how people ran for office and got elected and in certain situations. In that sense, um, if you uh, consider raising the lid and, and showing what's in the pot uh, in, in, in some ways, Yes, but n not in any kind of uh, didactic. Uh, yeah, I certainly agree. Stephen Marcus, who uh, edited the um, uh, Continental Op, the, the collection of stories that, that Lillian Hellman championed, uh, is the uh, chief uh, advocate of that uh, brand of, of uh, critical theorists, the Marxist theorists, uh, who uh, read um, Marxist theory into Hammett's earliest work. Uh, you know, Marcus is the head of the the Marxist. Uh, I'm sorry. Did I say Marcus is the head of the Marxist uh, uh, Institute at uh, Columbia. It's in his best interest to find Marxist under every rock, uh, and I think you know there's a lot of that that goes around. Uh, again, another rant. Excuse me. Always, always be suspicious of of theorists, literary theorists. When you have a feminist reading a novel, you're going to get a feminist reading. When you have uh, a Marxist reading a novel, you're going to get a Marxist theory. When you, you, you pick whatever ist you want, and those people are finding uh, what they want to find in the novel, and that's okay. The problem comes when they try to tell you that you've got to find that as well. Uh, and Stephen Marcus finds Marx, Marxism in Red Harvest, I'm, I'm very happy for him. Uh, but uh, I don't see it. <laughs> Question uh, to your left, up front here. Hello, my name is Christopher Sylvester. Um, two questions, very short. The first one, just to put it in, into context. Um, I'm sure the book was a bestseller when it came out. I wondered if you, any of you could give some idea of the scale of the sales of the book and how that compared to other bestsellers of the time. It might be a tough one, I know. And the second question, just a nuance on the question about Hammett Chandler. Both detectives um, are always described as men with a code. I wondered if you could say in what, in, in what respect you felt the code of Philip Marlowe differed from the code of Sam Spade. Good question. May, may I first answer the, the question about the sales, and then I'll shut up. Uh, the the uh, Maltese Falcon went in its first uh, edition through three printings, sold 10,087 copies. Uh, this, it, uh, this was in the first year of the Depression. Uh, that sounds like pretty good sales, and it was pretty good sales, and the book was, was reviewed uh, in glowing terms. In order to uh, have a bestseller uh, for the year 1930, uh, and this, this is the top 10 bestsellers. To make n the number 10 spot, you had to sell 100,000 copies. Uh, of the 10 uh, novels that were bestsellers in 1930, uh, one uh, is um, um, uh, available in a trade edition uh, now. 
uh, and I dare say uh, it, it was a Thornton Wilder uh, novel, a lesser Thornton Wilder novel. Uh, the rest uh, are barely uh, uh, known. In terms of uh, differences in the code, the Raymond Chandler was never a detective, and he described Philip Marlowe as being a knight rescuing a woman. Uh, one of the things that happens more than once with Philip Marlowe is that when a client offends his moral sensibilities, he gives their money back and then goes and solves the crime for free. That is not true of Hammett's detectives. <laughs> Sam Spade would not have given the money back. <laughs> Other thoughts? Spade's, Spade's code was, when your partner is killed, you have to do something about it. We have a question to your far right. Oh, hi. I'm Jean Torrey. I wondered what his relationship with uh, Lillian Hellman oh. was. Did they agree politically? Did they have children or... I'm not clear on their relationship. My grandfather met Lillian Hellman in 1931. They were, as we say, companions off and on for the rest of his life. They were never married. They never had children. My grandfather um, was never uh, legally divorced from my grandmother. There was a bit of a paper divorce that uh, was not, uh, did not hold up in the end. Um, they did. Uh, they were both uh, uh, communist sympathizers, and at least, uh, uh, although Hellman's uh, convictions were not uh, as uh, profound as my grandfather's. Uh, They're laughing. I'm being. She. She. Uh, Lillian was a difficult person in many ways, and in, very difficult to kind of, you know, create a capsule portrait. Uh, very complex. She had a lot of her own demons to deal with. Um, so, uh, for much of their life, they were companions. They were never faithful to each other, um, in you know, as lovers. Um, they did live together often, but not always. Um, they shared a home together in uh, in New York, in upstate New York. Um, and at the end of his life, when my grandfather was very ill and he had no resources, Hillman was the one who, despite many bad things that she had done. Um, before and after, um, did step in and take care of him and um, see him through his final days. Uh, so uh, it, it is, uh, it's the stuff legends are made of, but it's certainly <laughs> not it's something you can collapse down into a two minute uh, summary. I dare say, as uh, one of Hammett's first and arguably his best biographer, Richard Lehman, could give us another tirade about Lillian Hellman <laughs> if he wanted to. I'm curious about their creative relationship. Did they edit each other? Did they write together? Well, uh, Hammett gave uh, Hellman the idea for uh, her first uh, play. Uh, uh, Children's Hour? Children's Hour. Uh, <laughs> there's a funny story about that, I think. Uh, Hellman had a relationship at the time with a New, York, New Yorker uh, editor, uh, Louis Cronenberg, and uh, sh uh, she was trying to write a play with him, uh, and it didn't go. You know, it was, it was an awful play, you know, and uh, Hammett at the time was, was uh, vying for uh, Hellman's attentions, and he came to her with the idea for the children's hour. He won out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've always thought that, uh, and this may be an unpopular opinion, it's pure speculation. Don't think for a second that you have to give it any credence. Uh, but uh, I have uh, always thought that there's a Hellman uh, influence in uh, The Thin Man, just as there's a Hammett influence uh, in The Children's Hour. The Thin Man is a very different novel from uh, the kinds of novels that Hammett wrote, wrote 
uh, earlier. It has the, the uh, Nick and Nora Charles, that uh, easy companionship uh, that is, is so attractive. Uh, and uh, I can well imagine uh, the two of them uh, sitting around uh, having great fun uh, plotting out uh, that novel. Uh, I think, and, and certainly Hammett, uh, during the in entirety of uh, Hellman's playwriting career, her original plays, uh, that is, uh, Hammett was uh, more than a mentor. Uh, he was her aesthetic conscience, I think. Mm -hmm. We have a question oh. in midsection. My name is Brandon Wilson. I read a dual biography of Hellman and Hammett about, um, by Joan Mellon about 11 years ago uh, that really made a big impression on me. And her thesis about why he stopped producing um, when he did was that it was a combination of first alcohol, but also that being a man of his time, um, dropping the uh, genre as a shield might have been something difficult for him in terms of opening up and sort of being the interest that maybe he wasn't, it was difficult him to, to sort of reveal himself in the way that perhaps uh, non-genre uh, literature would require. Could you all speak to that if, or maybe you have theories about that or the book itself? First of all, I think um, this reminds me of what Rick was saying about the, you know, the isms. Uh, this is um, one interpretation. I've, you know, heard that before. I've heard Diane Johnson say something similar. Um, I have a lot of issues, uh, uh, you know, contentions with, with that book. I don't find it to be terribly accurate. I don't find it to be well documented. Um, so th there is that. So if, if she wants to put that spin on it, as any of the isms, you know, ists can do, she can put that spin on it. Um, you know, and if there's some some truth to it, it's always I would say, you know, take it with a grain of salt. So, but but I'm sure others have other more to say than that. No. Are there other, we have a question to your right. Yeah. Hi, my name is Howard Prouty. Um, question for the panel. There may be different answers to this question. Why has there never been a decent film adaptation of Red Harvest? Mm. Oh. oh, it's such <laughs> a good, question. Good question. Uh, unless you want to count Yojimbo <laughs> by Kurosawa and uh, the Clint Eastwood, what was it, Fistful of Dollars? Yeah. yeah. Um, unless you count that. And, of course, Miller's Crossing. And there's the bad movie, Last Man Standing, with Bruce Willis. So there have been a lot of rip-off versions of it. Uh, but no authorized film version that uh, had anything really to do with the book. Um, the movie, the rights to it have been bouncing around. No. There, there's, uh, Lillian Hillman uh, dealt with a company called Fast Films. Do you need to know anything more? <laughs> uh, she's, it, it was uh, a... Uh, and, and she uh, gave, uh, it was an option, and the option stated that if uh, the movie, um, a movie were made from Red Harvest, uh, then the rights to the novel would be perpetual. Uh, the, uh, uh, the producer, a uh, man named Grimaldi, uh, claims to have made uh, one copy of a movie uh, that was seen by maybe five people, uh, in Spain and therefore has kept the rights available. And in order to uh, uh, get the rights back, it requires very expensive litigation. Maybe it'll happen. Uh, uh, we'll see. 
I should just interject that I have seen on a friend's coffee table a screenplay, unproduced of course, for Red Harvest by Bernardo Bertolucci. There's Bertolucci, Donald Westlake uh, wrote uh, part of a screenplay, James Bridges, James Bridges uh, wrote one. Uh, this is under the Grimaldi, as Grimaldi was attempting uh, the movie, and, and Grimaldi and Bertolucci were, uh, you know, Grimaldi would be the producer, Bertolucci the, the director, screenwriter, so, you know, it was, they, they attempted it and it didn't work. Uh, Donald Westlake, for what it's worth, said it's the most outrageous scam, that is the, they, their claim to the rights that he's ever seen, and he's willing to testify to it in court man who knew his way, knows his way around a scam, Donald Westlake. I think there's a question over there. Yeah, we have a question in front mid-section. Uh, this will be the last question of the day. Uh, you will have an opportunity for additional questions for our panelists at our reception. Thank you. Hi, Jeff Wilkin. Uh, my question is, um, was Hammett asked to do the screenplays for The Thin Man and for um, Maltese Falcon? He, he did not, he wasn't asked to do the, the Maltese uh, Falcon screenplay. Uh, the, uh, at the time, the, the 41 Falcon, you know, there are three, three Maltese Falcons, 1931, 1936, Satan Met a Lady, and then the 1941. Uh, he was under contract in, at, at the time of the 19, uh, well, I'm sorry, he was out of the movie business in the Army in 1941. Uh, 36, or, or about to go into the Army. Uh, 36, he was under contract to MGM. Uh, and uh, although there is a gossip column uh, clipping that I have that says that uh, he was uh, asked to, to add uh, dialogue, I don't know why in the hell you'd add dialogue to, to that since it's already there. Uh, I, I don't believe he had any, uh, anything to do with it. As regards uh, the Thin Man, the original Thin Man, no. Uh, he did not uh, write the script, but he did write the original story for the second and the third of the six uh, Thin Man um, uh, movies uh, starring uh, uh, Myrna Loy and, and, and William Powell. If one were to look for a movie uh, other than a Hammett adaptation on which Hammett as a screenwriter or a centerist had the greatest influence, which would it be? Is, it, is there one called Mr. Dynamite? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an early Red Harvest. Yeah. Oh, speaking of Red Harvest, I guess. Yeah. Red Harvest influenced story. Well, uh, Mr. Dynamite actually uh, was based on a um, story treatment and outline that Hammett wrote, which is quite well fleshed out, set here in L.A., which Universal bought the rights to and made a movie. Uh, they changed a lot of it, changed the character name to, to uh, T.N. Thornton, T.N.T., and so it's called Mr. Dynamite. <laughs> I haven't seen it for years. I think that they moved the action to San Francisco. And, I don't think I've ever seen it. Uh, it's, it's, uh, they took almost all the Hammett out of it. But, uh, mm -hmm. but he did, if you can get uh, a bootleg copy of his original treatment, it's very Hammett, um, mm -hmm. set in Los Angeles, and it's actually a shame that nobody ever really made a movie out of it. And Julie also mentions a movie called Roadhouse Nights. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that... The Paramount had the rights at the time to Red Harvest, and supposedly Roadhouse Nights is based on it, but it's hard to find a trace of... It's got Jimmy Durante's first screen appearance, but it's hard to find a trace <laughs> of, of Hammett in it. Uh, the other thing is, of course, he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Screenplay for writing the screenplay to uh, a movie based on a Lillian Hellman play that came out in World War II. It was also nominated for Best Picture and... I'm 
flanking watch on the, on the Rhine. Watch, watch on, on the, the Rhine. Rhine. It's a Lillian Hillman play that was uh, based on a Hammett uh, short story that was unfinished called My Brother Felix. And if anybody wants to track down some of these movies that would strain even Netflix's uh, catalog, there's always Eddie Brandt's Saturday Matinee on Vineland in North Hollywood, cherished by all of us old movie buffs. Well, um, we are, I think, just about Thank out you of time. all so much for coming out on this beautiful Saturday morning to Sokolo. Uh, we want to remind you that our reception is going to take place upstairs, where also a Skylight Books will be selling a few of... Uh, copies of Hammett's book, so make sure you guys check those out. Thank you again to our panelists. And enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.